0: This podcast is presented to you by Pastors Tom and Bonnie DeShal from Celebration Church in Harare, Zimbabwe. For more information, please visit celebrationmen.org. I'm going to continue on our message by the Holy Spirit. And today I want to talk to you about two attributes of the Holy Spirit. Now there's many attributes, there's seven different attributes. But if I go through all seven of them, we'll be here all day. So I'd like to do two of them today. And I'd like you to open your Bibles. Everybody have their Bible? Lift your Bibles up. Say, this is my Bible. It is the Word of God. It is the direction for my life in matters of spirit, soul, that is mind, will, and emotions, and body. Amen. Open your Bibles to John, the 17th chapter. As you notice, I didn't put the scriptures up this time because we're reading in our real Bibles now, okay? John 17, get your pen out, and I'm going to read verses 13 through 21. John 17, verses 13 through 21. And now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world. Now, by the way, this is Jesus' prayer. How many of you know Jesus gets his prayers answered? It's very interesting to understand that Jesus when he prayed this prayer, was prophesying about you and I. He says, and now I come to thee, he's coming to the Father, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them, that's us, thy word, and the the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil, or the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither do I pray for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Boy, I tell you, you talk about a powerful passage of Scripture. Jesus is talking about Us being sanctified. Everybody say sanctified. You know, the church doesn't talk much about sanctification anymore, but uh, we're going to talk a little bit about it today. And he says, I sanctify them through my word, but I want to talk about how that happens today. He says, and not only do I sanctify them, he says, but they're going to be hated because they're not part of this world, just like I'm not part of this world. How many of you know that we live in this world, but we're really not part of it? We're part of the kingdom of God, and you will be hated by this world. Just tap your neighbor and say, you're going to be hated by the world. Why do I say that? Because Christianity is not going to be popular, and it's becoming less and less popular. Because people do not want truth. and we're not of this world. You know, in the 19th century, there were two philosophers that made an enormous impact on Western culture and upon the whole civilization. And by doing so, they influenced the whole world. In fact, today you and I are under the influence of these two uh, philosophers, probably more than we want to admit. They were both concerned with corruption in Western civilization. And they both described 19th century Europe. Okay, you have to understand that was the center of Western thought, Western civilization. And they described Europe as being decadent, hedonistic. And they saw the world though through two different philosophies and they proposed two different solutions. These philosophers. One was a guy named Soren Kierkegaard. Soren Kierkegaard lived from 1813 to 1855. Okay, so he was just before the second guy, Friedrich Nietzsche. Soren Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher. And he said the reason for the decadence of civilization was the failure to apply Christian virtues and values in a vital way in daily life. That was his that was his argument. He says, Christians are no longer making application of these virtues and these values in their day-to-day lives. He believed that Christianity had only become dead orthodoxy. In other words, it was a form without content, a form without any power, and it had become dispassionate and had removed itself from day-to-day matters. As he put it, this Age was paltry. Now he cried for a return to passion and to the life of Christ, Christian living. Now he often reflected and spoke about the people of the Old Testament because he somehow believed that they were more real. They were saints and they were sinners. There was nothing phony about those people in the Old Testament. There was nothing fake. There was nothing artificial. God really seemed to work in their lives, and they in turn had passion for him. You know, when I study some of these philosophers, when I, you know, we had to study Kierkegaard when I was in university. And, uh, you know, when I reflect back and I see his impact in society and how he's impacted even the church today, I'm also concerned about believers who do not see our faith in Christ as a mission in their lives or as a profound concern in our lives. You know, it seems like many Christians believe in the central doctrines of the Bible, but it's really harder and harder to find people whose lives are filled with a vibrant faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're full of just faith in Him. And I have a concern for that for even our church, that we don't just become those that have lip service, but that we really passionately love God. The other philosopher was a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche. And uh, he lived in 1844 to 1900. He was a German. And he believed that the death of Western, Western civilization was caused by Christianity. He was convinced that the ethics or the ethic of Christianity with its virtues of meekness and its virtues of kindness had emasculated the human race. He believed that Christianity denied and undercut the most basic human passion of all, and that is the will to power. He believed that the basic strength of the human being was his will to power and that according to Nietzsche, life is a power struggle. Nietzsche called for a new civilization that would be ushered in by a kind of human existential hero, a new kind of human. He called it the ubermach, which means Superman. He wanted a super being, a Superman. And he described this man as someone who would face all of the elements that life had head on. He's the kind of person that would build his house on the side of a volcano, knowing that it's going to erupt, but face it head on. This is the kind of person that would go out and fight the tempestuous seas, and whether there be sea monsters or terrible storms, he's going to face it head on. There should be no hindrance for the Superman. See, the whole idea of a Superman is that he is a conqueror and that his chief virtue or his chief value is courage. And Nietzsche believed that courage was the main thing that was lacking in the 19th century. But he gave a very strange spin, which we're still dealing with today, on the subject of courage. He called it dialectic courage. Now you have to understand that back at that time, this terminology, the dialectic came out a lot and has infiltrated our society. And I think I could best describe it with an illustration. So I need three people to come up here and be my guinea pigs. Quickly, three people just run up here on the stage, okay? One, two, three, here we go. All right. All right. Okay, that's four. You can sit back down. Okay, I want you to stand right here, just over here on that right, right there, And I want you to stand next to him, okay? I want you to stand over here on this side. Now, here's the theory of dialectic. Okay? The dialectic, what he called dialectic courage, in philosophy, the word dialectical has to do with the state of contradiction. It's where something stands in antithesis to something else. So, Let me explain how this works. The communists have used this. The devil uses it. This is really a tool of the devil. He doesn't have many tools in his toolbox, but this is his best one. And here's how it works. This is the thesis of truth. And this is my brother, is standing with the thesis of truth. So the enemy comes and brings the opposite of truth. He brings an antithesis, the anti thesis, and tries to make it as absurd as possible. For example, 63 genders. That sounds absurd, doesn't it? But the fact of the matter is, as absurd as that sounds, it really has nothing to do with the antithesis as much as it does with what we call synthesis. Because no matter how far we move away from the thesis, the truth, we synthesize our position and we're closer to the antithesis. Here's the problem, once you've synthesized your position the thesis for you becomes your synthesized position. It's very hard to go back to the truth. It's very hard to go back to what was. And this works in politics. This works in the church. This is true in relationships, in marriage. And that's why we have to guard the thesis. The Bible says, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. And so this philosopher and this philosophy has crept into our society in such a way as that we are constantly being bombarded with new antithesis, with new truths, with new facts. You know, I I sometimes read these these facts that come out. Well, the facts are based on hypotheses that are not true. So they are true based on a false hypothesis, Does that make sense to you? But all it's doing is constantly causing us to synthesize our positions. And we're moving further and further away from truth. Does this make sense to anybody? And the problem is that these things can never be resolved. You guys can sit down, thanks. So... What then is dialectical courage? Well, don't take my word for it, do your own research. But I'll give you a little idea. Nietzsche came up with the conclusion That life life is nihilistic, which simply means meaningless. The theory of nihilism that, hey, this life is meaningless. By the way, Solomon came up with the same thing. After Solomon had had a thousand wives, had worshipped at a thousand different gods and different temples, he just said, life is meaningless. You read Ecclesiastes, he's in a backslidden state. He's totally far from God, and he's writing so that we can see that life is meaningless without God. Life is meaningless without a thesis. Once you've broken thesis and you've gone to antithesis, there is nothing left for living. He believed that God was dead, Nietzsche. And since there is no God, there's no such thing as absolute goodness. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Today we live in a society where we have what's called moral relativism. Moral relativism simply says there is no truth except what's relevant or relative to yourself. So only you can determine what truth is. Once that is out of the way, there is no objective significance to human existence. Life's meaning is only what you and I make out of it. Therefore, we have to manifest courage in a world that isn't so much hostile as it is indifferent. This is what Nietzsche was saying, and that's what this superman will do. He'll face every issue head on with little care if he lives or dies. Have you noticed how many people are becoming adrenaline junkies these days? That's part of this whole process. It's it's pushing ourselves to the point of, hey, if I die, I die, but it doesn't matter because life is meaningless. I'm trying to find meaning by facing and doing incredible things in this life to try to find that meaning. This is dialectic courage. Courage in the face of of the universe's indifference. Nietzsche basically was saying this. He said, life is meaningless, therefore have courage. But then he says, but your courage is meaningless, but have it anyway. So you say, well, pastor, what do these philosophers have to do with the Holy Spirit? Well, in the upper room, on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus gave his disciples some important promises regarding the Holy Spirit. One of the things he told them that he, he, he was that he was going to depart. And just before he departed, he said, I have a promise for you. And that's the first point. He promised an advocate, an advocate. John 14, 16 says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. John 14, 16. I will give you, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Some, Some of your versions will read comforter. He will give you another comforter. But the Greek word is the word parakletos, parakletos. And it's a combination of two words. Para, which is alongside, and the root of the verb is kletos, which means to call. So the idea of a parakletos is someone who is called to stand alongside another. Someone who is called to stand alongside another. Now this term was usually applied to an attorney. Not just any attorney, but to the family attorney. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you have a family attorney. When your business or your family or somebody in the family gets in trouble, you pick up the phone and this guy is on retainer for you. He is the family attorney. People of great wealth have their own attorneys. Hello? You know, we have... Alex here in the church. I mean, I don't know what we would do without him. He is on call for the church. He serves us as the church and has gotten us out of a lot of situations. I would call him my paraclete in the church. Amen? Hallelujah. You give him a good hand. But technically, this word, the paracletos, was the family who, attorney who was on permanent retainer with the family. Anytime a problem arose in the family, the paraclete was called upon. He would come immediately to assist in the struggle. Now, this is the way our relationship is with the Holy Spirit. We are part of the family of God, and the family attorney is the Holy Spirit himself. And he's always ready and always present to come alongside us to help us in our time of trouble. He is the paraclete. Now, the idea of comforter has almost lost its meaning in our society. Jesus wasn't, wasn't talking about someone who would come and heal the disciples' wounds when they were bruised and broken, and, 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 and that's not that he, that he doesn't do that. I mean, we know that for those of us that have uh, broken hearts, he's the balm of Gilead in the midst of our mourning, in the midst of our grieving, and that the Holy Spirit does comfort us in that way. But we have to remember the context in which Jesus is promising to send the Holy Spirit. He's telling his disciples that he's about to leave them. He's about to go and be with his father. He's gonna be crucified on the cross. And they were gonna be without him in the midst of a hostile world, a world that hated him and that will hate them. Every moment of their lives would be filled with pressure, with hostility and with persecution From the world. How many of you know that nobody really wants to enter that kind of a world without some kind of help? Now the word comforter was selected in a time when that word meant something entirely different than it means today. So we have to go back to definitions. How many of you know that the word comfort has been synthesized? Today it's comfortable. It's no pressure, no pain. It's just to feel good. But in the day that the word was spoken in the Bible, and, the, and when it was written in the King James Version, it was taken from the Latin word comfortis. it derived from two words. Calm, meaning with, and fortis, meaning strong. So the original word carried the meaning with strength. With strength. So the original intention is that the Holy Spirit comes to the people of Christ not to heal your wounds after a battle, but to strengthen them before and during the struggle. He's your advocate. He's there to strengthen you. He's there to stand by you. He's there to equip you. He's there to help you in and before the struggle. The idea that the church operates not so much as a hospital, but as an army, has to be recovered. We turn the church into a babysitting club. Oh, I just feel so bad. It's time to grow up and not feel bad. It's time to grow up and become the army of God. You have a comforter. You have an advocate. The Holy Spirit is with you. He comes to empower, to strengthen Christians, to ensure victory and to ensure the conquest. So, Nietzsche, he says, Life is meaningless, but have courage anyway. Jesus also called his people to be courageous in the face of difficulty, adversity, and hostility. But he didn't call us to have groundless courage. Look at John, the 16th chapter, verse 33. Look what he says. He says, These things I have spoken unto you. John 16, verse 33. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. But look what he says. He he says, Take heart. Or some versions say, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. See, he isn't telling us to take heart for the sake of taking heart. He's giving us a reason why we ought to have a sense of confidence and assurance in our hearts. He says, take heart. Be of good courage. I have overcome the world. And I'm not leaving you comfortless. He says, I'm sending you... An advocate, I'm sending you somebody to stand by you so you could overcome. As I overcame, you could overcome. The same person that helped me overcome is coming to help you to overcome. The Holy Spirit. See, Nietzsche wanted a superman. A superman, a conqueror. Let me tell you something, he should have looked to Christ. He should have looked to Jesus. Because Jesus overcame the world, and He did it with the same Spirit that He sends to you and I, to His people. See, the Holy Spirit comes to strengthen us, to give us power. That's why the Bible says in Romans, you can look at this up, Romans 8, verse 37. Go ahead and turn there. You're going to want to underline this. You're going to want to mark it. You're going to put a star by this. Romans 8, 37. He says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. Nietzsche wanted a conqueror. (laughs) Paul says, no, you're more than conquerors. This is a step above Nietzsche. You see, the the Holy Spirit supplements the work of Jesus Christ. Christ was the first paraclete, he was the first comforter, and he came to strengthen us by his atoning death on the cross of Calvary. He died to pay for all mankind's sin. Now, the empowerment to live the life that Christ has purchased for us and called us to live comes to us by the help of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's what the Holy Spirit's for, is to help you to live this life. So everybody say, he's our advocate. Tell your neighbor, he's our advocate. Number two, he's also our sanctifier. Why is the Holy Spirit called the Holy Spirit? Well, because he's holy. That's right. But so is the Father. The, the Father is also known by his unblemished holiness. And that same holiness is also an attribute of the Son. You know, there's no sense in which the Holy Spirit possesses a greater degree of holiness or a greater measure of holiness than the other two members of the Trinity. So it's not the quantity of holiness that makes him Holy. It's not his superabundant holiness that leads us to call him the Holy Spirit. In the same way, the Spirit is indeed a spirit. But how do we know that God the Father is also a spirit? And that God the Son is also a spirit being? And that you and I are also spirit beings? So it's not that he's designated Or that he, it's because he's a spirit that we designate the third person as the Holy Spirit. So what is it? Why do we call him the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, the term holy is attached to his title because he has a particular task to perform in our redemption. Among the persons of the Trinity, it's the Holy Spirit who is the principal actor and works For our sanctification. Bringing us into a place of being sanctified or or made holy. Remember Jesus' prayer? He says, I pray that you would sanctify them. I'm praying that you would make them holy even as you made me holy. Well, whose role is it to sanctify? It's the role of the sanctifying spirit, the Holy Spirit. And he's enabling the process by which we are conformed into the image of Christ and made holy. Does that make sense? See, I, I often have people come in and they ask me, well, what is the will of God for my life? What's the will of God for my life? And, and they ask all kinds of questions, like who should they marry? What career should they pursue? And a myriad of other decisions that they make. But the Bible's very clear about the principle and the principal will of God in our lives. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, Go ahead and turn there. You're going to want to underline this. Everybody turn there. First Thessalonians 4. I'll wait until I hear Bible stop flipping. First Thessalonians 4. Don't you just love reading this in your own Bible? Doesn't it make you feel like a scholar when you underline these things? See, what I would do is I'd write in the front of my Bible, what is the will of God? And here's what it says. Paul writes this. He says, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Then he goes on that you should abstain from fornication. That you should, what? That you should have a holy life. He says abstain from these sins. But this is the will of God, even your sanctification. What is God's will? that you be sanctified, that you be made holy. You know, I I hear Christians at other times speak about being led by the Holy Spirit to do something. I feel led of the Spirit to do something. Anybody ever say that? The Spirit told me to do this. And I do believe that the Holy Spirit does lead us into specific destinations or specific tasks. But primarily, the leading of the Spirit as set forth in the scriptures, is to lead us into holiness. It is his power in us that helps us to grow in holiness. So we need to be very careful to go to the pages of the scriptures to learn about God's will and the leading of the spirit and not simply listen to the popular teachings of this Christian subculture in which we live. What am I talking about? We live in a subculture of Christianity that's getting weirder by the minute. We make it sound like the Holy Spirit is of some private interpretation that, well, I just feel led. You feel led How does that work? See, the primary reason that the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit is because it is his specific task to enable the followers of Christ in their quest for holiness, in their quest for sanctification. The second thing is that the person or the third person is called the Holy Spirit because there's more than one kind of spirit in the world. The scriptures make a distinction between the spirit of man, how many of you know that you are a living spirit, you have a spirit, and the spirit of God? How many of you know that those are two different things? Even when you read the Bible, you have to discern when you're being led by your spirit and when you're being led by the Holy Spirit. But even more important, the Bible speaks about evil spirits, spirits that are not from God. Demonic spirits. And these spirits desire to impede the progress of the Christian in his quest for sanctification. Now the key, the key difference between these evil spirits and the Holy Spirit is precisely the point. Holiness. Holiness. Evil spirits are unholy spirits. But the Holy Spirit is holy altogether. He is holy. It is because of this distinction that the Apostle John warns us. Again, you need to look this up. 1 John 4.1. This is a warning. 1 John 4.1. You need to study the Bible. We need to know what God says. We don't just give mental assent to the Scriptures. We study it. We say, wait a minute. What does the word of the Lord say? 1 John, chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to what it says. It says flip, 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 flip. Some of you even know where 1 John is. It's back in the back of your Bible where the pages stick together. <laughs> 1 John 4, verse 1. Listen to what it says. Do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Don't take my word for it. Do your own research. See, you're supposed to be testing the spirits to see if they're from God or not. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are from God. Because many false prophets are gone into the world. Many false prophets. Many false prophets. Many false prophets. I didn't say it. Don't get mad at me. The Bible says it. Test the spirits, whether they be from God. What he's saying is, don't take my word for it. I'm always shocked at people that just run after every preacher in town. Oh, guess who's here today? Have you tested the spirit of that person? Have you tested the spirits? Now, I'm emphasizing these points for a reason. You know, in the Christian world, many of us are masters at justifying our sins. Just tap your neighbor and say, I think he's talking about you right now. And you know what? One of the ways that we do this is by saying things like, well, we were led to do such and such by the Holy Spirit. I felt led of the Spirit to do that. You know, and, and 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 this is not a problem that I encounter just once in a while. It has become an epidemic in my life. I get to travel all over the world and I talk to so-called professing Christians, and they're telling me that, oh, that, that he or she is getting a divorce without biblical grounds, or they're entering into a marriage proposition without biblical qualifications. Or They're running a business according to unscriptural principles, but it's okay, because they're doing this or that, and without fail, they tell me they do it because, well, I prayed about it, and God has given me peace, or the Holy Spirit has led me to do this. You see, when I hear these kinds of justifications for unbiblical behavior, I believe I actually believe that people believe what they're telling me, even though they're not speaking the truth. In fact, they're speaking error, very serious error. But I know that they're speaking error for two reasons. These reasons are grounded in two crucial designations about the character of the Holy Spirit. First, He is the Holy Spirit. He's holy. Second is that Jesus repeatedly called Him the Spirit of Truth. Throughout the Scriptures, study it. Go do your own research. The Spirit of Truth. The Spirit of Truth. He kept talking about the Spirit of Truth. The Holy Spirit never entices us to do something that is unholy. Neither does the Holy Spirit ever incline us to embrace a lie. Ever. You know, we refer to the Bible as the Word of God. It is. It is the Word of God. But one of the reasons why the church has confessed its faith that the Scriptures are the Word of God is the biblical claim that the words are sacred Scripture and that they were originally inspired by God the Holy Spirit. We say that this was spirit breathed, that God breathed his life into these scriptures by his spirit. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is not only inspiring the writing of the biblical books, but he is at work to illuminate the scriptures and apply them to our understanding. In 1 Corinthians 14 33, Paul says, God is not a God of confusion and that includes the Holy Spirit. God's not confused, and the Holy Spirit's not confused. This means that the Holy Spirit never teaches us to do something or asks us to do something that He explicitly explicitly forbids in the Scriptures. Why would He ask you to do something that's not in the Bible? And I'm telling you, many of our preachers are out here And they're saying things that are false. They're not even in the Bible. They're just preaching stuff. So when the Bible tells us that we're supposed to test the spirits to see if they are from God, how are we supposed to do that? What kind of test should be employed? What's the test for testing the spirits? Well, obviously the test must be a biblical test. Because we know that in the Scriptures, we have the teaching of the Spirit of truth. The Scriptures are the teaching of the Spirit of truth. Therefore, if I have some kind of internal inclination, a hunch, or a desire, that I want to associate that internal leading with the Holy Spirit. But I also see that this inclination in my heart is clearly opposed to what is taught in the Scriptures. Well, then I have proof positive that I am confusing lust or covetousness or some other internal feeling as the leading of the Holy Spirit. If my feelings are contrary to the Word of God, then I'm going to tell you something. It's not the right spirit. Yeah, but I felt good about it. Of course you feel good about it. You see, here's, here's what we don't understand. Can I have my three Volunteers up here again. Quickly, three volunteers. I need one to stand down here on the floor. One to stand here. Come up here. And one to stand on the stairs back there. And one to stand on the stairs back here. You, you come and stand right behind him. No, he, you're going to stand behind that guy on the, on the stage. You're going to stand on the stairs. Now, I, I wanna, I'm trying to depict something to you. There are three heavens. There is the heaven that we live in. (sighs) Thank God for this heaven. We breathe this air. It's fantastic, right? And then there's the third heaven. The third heaven is where God is, where his presence is. It's where we get the privilege to go to to have our prayers answered. He says you can come boldly before the throne of grace to find help in your time of need. But between the first heaven and the third heaven, there's what's called the second heaven. This is where the prince of the air rules. The god of this world, Satan. He has a lot of activity in this earth, this earthly first heaven realm, but he rules as the prince of the power of the air. That's why he infiltrates the airways. That's why the news, most of it is fake news, and especially in Zimbabwe. <laughs> All it is is to, get distressed, to distract you from what's really going on. None of that's real. It's just distraction, and it's a bunch of really people that are being fed a line and they're, they're paid by other people to, to just write whatever they're told. But nobody's really thinking anymore. Nobody's really contemplating what's really happening. And they're deceived. And if you just take a minute and just apply what I'm telling you right now, test the spirits. They lie all the time. The Holy Spirit doesn't lie. Newspapers don't have to tell the truth anymore. They just create supposition. In fact, they even tell you, we're just trying to sell newspapers. We're just trying to sell something. So they don't care if it's the truth. They're not reporting the truth. They're telling stories. Tap your neighbor. Say, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear what he's saying. I don't want to hear this. Come on, tell him. I don't want to hear what he's saying. Exactly. I like my state of deception. I like being deceived. Anybody listening? So, in these three heavens, this is the demonic realm. That's what you get for telling me that. This realm is the realm that is full of the counterfeit. It looks like the spirit of God. It smells like the spirit of God, but it's a lie. It's a lying spirit. Doesn't the Bible even say that Satan or that the devil will appear as an angel of light? Well, don't do. You, do you think you're gonna? Oh, pray. If if the devil came out with horns and a pitchfork, you'd say that's the devil. You don't get deceived by that. This is what deceives you. It looks good. It smells good. And it feeds your soul. And it's, but it's contrary to the truth. It's contrary to the Holy Spirit. It's contrary to the Word of God. But that's how some of you go back to the witch doctor. That's how you justify it. Well, you know, I just, I just feel it's okay. I think God said it's all right. Where did he say that? I just felt it. I just, you know, I I I didn't want to offend my parents. Excuse me? You'll offend God but you won't offend your parents? Well, you know, it's our culture. <laughs> it's our culture? You are part of the new culture called the kingdom of God. Does this make sense? And when you traffic at that level, you're trafficking in this heaven and you're deceived. And it's not holy. And it leads to your own destruction. I'm trying to warn you. Here's the problem there is so much second level activity in the church today that people are attributing to God, and it's not God. I'll tell you what, God is not charging for miracles. Freely I have received, freely I give. It is my Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. We don't preach the gospel for money. That's error. It's deception. But some of us like it that way. Because these people are only going to tell you one thing. Hey, have courage feel good about yourself because all there is is nihilism the boundaries have been moved so far that all it is is about us it's up to you crush people, step on people get where you have to go in the name of God and it's so contrary to the truth Thank you for that. Mm -mm -mm. Come on, give these guys a hand as they take their seat. So we hardly ever hear about this among Christians today. Because Christians easily make themselves seem spiritual by saying, God laid this or that on my heart. God led me to do these things. You know, every time I hear this kind of thing, I want to say to the person, how do you know that God laid it on your heart? How do you know that it is not a manifestation of your own ambition or your own avarice? See, I want the person to show me the biblical basis for his claim. I mean, I've heard some of the messages of things being preached just recently in this city. It is not even the Bible, it is ridiculous. And yet, everybody's flocking to hear Brother Wonderful. sister, stupendous. But they're not preaching the Bible anymore. Oh, They tell nice stories, and they twist the Scriptures. I want to know the biblical basis for your claim. Now, I don't believe, I don't doubt that the Holy Spirit can put a burden on a believer, that he can lead a believer supernaturally, but he always does it within and throughout and through the Scriptures. He never goes against his own revelation in the Bible. So the way to test the spirits is to judge them by the Spirit's own truth, the Holy Spirit's truth, the Bible. Don't take my word for it. Do your own research. See, part of our growth in sanctification is growth in our understanding of the things of God. Unfortunately, there are movements today sweeping throughout the entire Christian world where there is a pervasive indifference and even a hostility to the study of doctrine, to the study of theology. I've actually heard people say this, that there's two kinds of people in the church. People who think theology is important and people who think theology is not important. But this... Comment is also has an implication to it because they imply that the people who care about theology somehow are not loving. And that is a problem. Because God is more concerned that we become loving than that we know theology. That's what they say. Oh, we should just be loving. And it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as we love each other. I know know sometimes the study of doctrine can lead to dead religion. And that's not godly. That's not godly at all. I think we all know that it's possible to study doctrine as an intellectual exercise. And have no love for God or for other people. But it's wrong for us to generalize this problem and conclude that if we pursue the study of Christian theology that we cannot be loving. Many people believe that the best way to be loving is to avoid theology. And that's proven in our churches today. It's ridiculous to think that the best way to be loving is to avoid as much as we can possibly the the things that lead us to the understanding of God. The study of theology is simply the study of the character of God. And by the way, his crowning virtue is love. So if you're studying about God, if you're studying the theology, the study of God, his character, guess what you're going to run straight into? Love. Love. Because that's who he is. So it's amazing to me how the church is more and more shying away from all theological controversies. Here's what I hear said all the time. Well, I don't care about this controversy or about doctrine in general I just think we need to be more loving towards each other. But is it loving to allow serious theological error to continue unchallenged? Was Paul unloving when he disputed daily in the marketplace about the things of God in Acts 17, 17? Was Jesus unloving when he contradicted the teachings of the Pharisees? Were the prophets of Israel unloving when they rebuked and admonished the false prophets? Was Elijah unloving when he disputed with the prophets of Baal? Were they being unloving? I think we need to have some holy disputes. I think we need to debate. I think it's time that we question the spirit behind some of the teaching in the church today. I can't imagine someone... In the crowd on Mount Carmel, as Elijah is confronting the prophets of Baal, saying, well, you people can follow Elijah if you want to, but I'm not going to. He may have truth on his side, but he's not very loving. Look what he did to those prophets of Baal. How unloving. Let me tell you something, we're not far from that in the body of Christ today. We're not far from that. Contending for the truth of God is an act of love, not a sign of the absence of love. If we love God, if we love Christ, if we love the church, we must love the truth that defines the very essence of Christianity. Don't take my word for it. My time is up. But I want to say this. I believe that part of the truth, and and we emphasize this in our church, and I believe that Christianity is about relationships. I really do. I think we need to have more relationships And to the degree that that's true though, we have to balance it with the fact that Christianity is also about propositions. You see, the influence influence of existentialism, these great philosophers in our culture, in general, and in the church in particular, has produced something that has not been known in previous generations. You and I are faced with something called relational theology. To put it simply, relational theology is a theological system that has content and meaning based upon relationships. And it's only one step removed from pure relativism. This is the kind of theology that says if you believe that God is one and I believe that God is three in one, what really matters isn't the truth, it's just that we have a relationship with each other. For example, if I say that Jesus died on the cross as an atonement, and someone else says his death was not an atonement, we don't discuss it lest we sever our relationship. You see, when we do this, what we're saying is that the relationship must be preserved, even if it's at the cost of truth. That can't be, folks. That can't be. God sent us the Holy Spirit as an advocate and as a sanctifier. He is the Spirit of truth. You see, we study the things of God. And when we do, we're not studying the truth in some kind of abstract. We're not studying theology so I can get an A on an exam so I can tell you the right answer, so I can, no, 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 no. We want to understand the doctrine of God so we can better understand who God is. So that we can meet the living God. He reveals himself through the word and in his word. And when we do this, we deepen our relationship with him. But we cannot deepen our relationship with someone we don't know about. You don't get to know him meditating on your navel. You don't get to know Him by emptying yourself and listening to every voice that comes into you. The propositions of Scripture are not an end in themselves, but they're a means to an end. For us to say that Christianity is not about propositions, but about relationships, establishes a very, very dangerous false dichotomy. There's something wrong. It's an insult to the spirit of truth who gave us the propositions, who gave us the word of God. I heard somebody just the other day, I'm going to close with this thought. They were criticizing people for digging into word studies from ancient languages so that they could better understand what Jesus taught or what the Bible taught from the original languages. And I I think there are probably some scholars who could probably study the meaning of a word in six different languages and still come up with the wrong meaning. I I understand that. But that does not mean that we do not engage in serious study of the Word of God. In fact, if I had my way, every one of you would be in Bible college. Every one of you would say, I'm going to get to know God through the study intensively of His Word. See, I heard someone say, the people who engage in this kind of deep, study are not concerned about the pain that people experience in this world. You know in my spirit in my experience, it is impossible it's virtually impossible to experience pain and not ask questions about truth. I've watched people die in a war. I saw people maim each other. And I had to ask deep questions about truth. I saw God. I didn't get those answers in one day and even in one year. I see how people mistreat each other. I can see how a government doesn't care about its people. And I say, God, where is the truth in this? Where are you in this? See, we all want to know the truth about suffering specifically, where is God in my pain? That's a theological concern. The answer comes to us from the Scriptures. And the Scriptures reveal the mind of God, and He does so through the agency of the Holy Spirit who illuminates His Word, who is called the Spirit of Truth. You know, it's amazing to me in this so-called sophisticated society we live in that even in this church there are people that know more about the 12 signs of the Zodiac than they do the 12 tribes of Israel, let alone the 12 apostles of the Bible. It's true, it's true. Our world likes to see itself as somehow sophisticated and technological, but it remains filled with superstition. You have every gadget, but you're still full of superstition. And I want you to know, Christians aren't immune to this. Many are succumbing to the New Age desire for the power to manipulate our environment. Practicing yoga and opening themselves up to demonic postures. Do your own research. Do your own research. Chakras and energy flows and Those things are all true. They're there. But God also talked about the latent power of the soul. He gave us the Holy Spirit. We're to be spirit-led, not soulish. You know, we don't have to go as far as expecting the foolish idea of the zodiac and the stars to determine our destinies and our achievements and our successes. But it's equally superstitious to equate our feelings and our inclinations with the leading of the Holy Spirit. I just feel led. I feel. You know, it seems so much more exciting to live with a freewheeling openness to the leading of the Holy Spirit that we can do whatever we want to in His name rather than practicing the laborious discipline of mastering the Word of God. I want you to know this is very dangerous ground. If we want to do the will of the Father, we must study the word of the Father. We must leave the magic to the astrologers and the false prophets. And we must submit to the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more teachings and videos, visit celebrationmen.org.